While occasionally referencing real-life people and events, Heavy Head is a work of fiction that is not meant to be used as a diagnostic tool and contains adult language and situations. Listener discretion is advised. Uh, a little bit about myself up top, like Billy said, my name's Tanner Hines. I'm 47 years old. Yeah. Now I know what you're thinking, oh wow, only 47, you look much older. It's because I refuse to take care of myself. I'm just kidding you guys, I'm only, uh, I'm 26. This is my actual height though, I'm uh, small. I've always been small. I was uh, so low in fact growing up that a family friend once suggested that my brother and I would make good racing jockeys when we grow up. <laughs> well, joke's on her. Does anybody remember that jockey a couple years ago that won the Triple Crown? Anybody? That's me. I'm Victor Espinoza. <laughs> Tanner Hines is just my stage name. Hines is 26 years old. Born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, Tanner works at a recording studio during the day and at night he pursues his dream of becoming a stand-up comedian. He has struggled with depression most of his life but didn't seek treatment for his symptoms until he was 17. He has spent the last 10 years exhausting every form of available treatment in an attempt to curb his fluctuating illness. This is his story. How long have you felt this way? Please? Your symptoms. Feelings of hopelessness, depressed mood, loss of interest, difficulty concentrating. How long have you been having these symptoms? Oh, um, it's hard to say. I've, I've seemed to have lost the ability to keep track of time lately. Uh, maybe a few weeks, uh, a few months, years. You've been feeling like this for years? Why haven't you told someone before? Why would I tell anyone? Well, based off the depression inventory you just filled out, you definitely show signs of clinical depression. What's clinical depression? I'm going to start you out on 50 milligrams of an antidepressant called Zoloft. 
Take it once a day. I'll have the nurse print out a list of talk therapists in the area, and I'd recommend you make an appointment to see one. Antidepressant therapy? Yes, it's the best course of treatment. Hey, honey. So how did your appointment with Dr. Daniels go? Um, fine, I guess. Well, what did he say? He had me fill out this thing called a depression inventory. It's like a survey that asks you a bunch of questions, and you circle a number that matches with how you feel based on the question. What were some of the questions? Um, I can't remember. There were so many. Did he go over the answers with you? Yeah, he said my answers exhibit signs of what he called clinical depression. What does that mean? I don't know. He he wouldn't say. He prescribed me something called an antidepressant. I think it's called Zoloft. I, I don't know. Anyway, it won't be ready until the morning. He also gave me a list of therapist names. He thinks I should start talking to one. Okay. Leave it on the table. I'll make some calls in the morning while you're at school. Does it feel better having talked to someone? Not sure. It's still a lot to process. Honey, you think you could try to tell us more about how you've been feeling? I mean, you texted us last night telling us you think you're depressed. And I know we talked a lot about it when you got home, but you just kind of caught us off guard. Don't get us wrong. We're glad you told us, but we just had no idea. We just want to understand how you feel. Um, um, I'm just tired. I feel tired all the time. Just feel sad most of the time. More than normal people, I guess. I, I don't know. Fine. A little nervous. That's completely normal. I hope you know how proud I am of you. You're so brave to be getting help. Thank you. I don't... Tanner? Yeah. Hi, Tanner. My name is Dr. Terry Blackman. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. Hey, doctor. My name's Tanner Hines. Thanks for seeing me. And you are? I'm Susan Hines. I'm Tanner's mother. It's so nice of you to be here to support your son. I realize this must be difficult for the both of you. Well, yeah. You are more than welcome to wait here, Mrs. Hines. There are restrooms and vending machines down the hall on your left-hand side. We will be back out in about 45 to 50 minutes. Sounds good. Thank you so much. I love you, son. Love you. Please, feel free to sit on the couch. You're more than welcome to take your shoes off, whatever makes you feel most comfortable. So Tanner, before we can begin, I'd like to know, what is it that brings you here today? Um, well, I went to the doctor because I was feeling depressed. Uh, so he wrote me a Zoloft prescription 
and gave me a list of therapists he recommends seeing. Uh, your name was first on the list. Yes, I understand. That's what your mother said on the phone. But what I want to hear is why you think you need therapy. Oh, um, uh, I'm not sure. I've never done anything like this before. Uh, I don't know how this is supposed to go. You've never been to a psychotherapist before? No. Okay. Perhaps then it is best to start with an overview of what psychotherapy is and what some of the expectations of therapy are. How does that sound? Fine. Good. Now, I'm what's known as a psychotherapist. There are many other names for psychotherapists, including psychoanalyst, psychologist, or just plain therapist. These are blanket names given to someone who is trained to help other people deal with their emotional problems in a healthy way. Does this make sense so far? Yes. The goal of therapy is to examine difficulties an individual is facing and through examination gain insight on how to deal with those difficulties. I like to say that therapists are like mirrors reflecting what can't be seen, yet the only way this can be done is by having a patient who is honest, open, and most importantly, willing to talk about their problems. Still make sense? Yes. Therapy is a safe space for people to talk openly about anything they want. Whatever you tell me in session will not be heard by anyone else. It stays between us. Does that make sense? Yes. Good. Now, I'll ask again. What brings you here today? Um. How you guys doing? You doing all right? Doing good? Good. All right. Uh, I'm in uh, therapy. Who else? Who else? This is a sad fuck. Let's show yourselves. Clinton, turn the lights on. I want to see their sad faces. Uh, it's weird uh, telling people you're sick when it's a mental illness because you can't uh, talk about it the way you do like, like a physical ailment. Uh, you tell someone you're sick, they're like, oh, you have like a, like a stomach bug or something. And uh, you can't just be honest, be like, oh, no, it's my, my brain keeps telling me to kill myself. <laughs> because what's the other person going to say? They can't be like, oh, yeah, I... I <laughs> I heard that's going around. <laughs> so Tanner, You've been on Zoloft, what, three, four months now? Actually, it's been closer to five months. October, November, December, January, February. Oh, you're right. My mistake. How has the medicine been treating you? Initially, great. It gave me a, a nice energy boost, but has felt stagnant the last couple months. You felt stagnant, or the medicine does? I seem to feel the same as when I started the medicine. The medicine has seemed to stop working. I see. What dosage are you on? 
I started on 50 milligrams, but my doctor bumped it up to 100 at my two-month checkup when I told him I wasn't feeling better. But you did initially. Yes. Then I started to feel the same as before treatment. I see. We call this a plateau. Have you considered talking to your doctor about trying a new medication? New medication? Yes. There are a number of different antidepressants. Sometimes it takes a few tries to find the right balance. Also, Tanner, have you had any thoughts about hurting yourself since you started taking Zoloft? Hurting myself? Yes. Antidepressants can actually increase the risk of suicidal thoughts or actions during initial treatment. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So, have you? No. And you'd tell me if you were, right? Yes. Were we scheduled to see each other again so soon? No, I called for your next available. I was talking with my therapist, and we don't think the new dosage is working. I'm sorry to hear that. Unfortunately, you are already at the maximum dosage of Zoloft that I'm comfortable prescribing for someone of your body type. However, we can try a new medicine. Okay, so what exactly are these pills doing anyway? Zoloft is an antidepressant that belongs to the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, right? Or the SSRI family. The brain sends signals using what's called a neurotransmitter. One of these neurotransmitters is called serotonin. It is believed that depression is caused by low levels of serotonin in the brain. Now, serotonin levels become reabsorbed into neurons in a process called reuptake. SSRIs block this reuptake process, therefore allowing more serotonin to be available to improve transmission of messages between the neurons. Does that make any sense? Um, I guess. So there are different types of these medications? There are actually three main types of antidepressants. You have SSRIs, SNRIs, and tricyclics. All brand names of SSRIs essentially do the same thing. It's just that the names of the medications are different. Serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or those are the SNRIs, they do the same thing as SSRIs, except they block the reuptake of serotonin and a second neurotransmitter, norepinephrine, increasing their levels in the brain. Tricyclics increase the levels of serotonin and norepinephrine while also blocking a third neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, from working. How do you know which one to give? Well, typically we like to prescribe SSRIs first because they generally have fewer side effects compared to other antidepressants. Now, most antidepressants can take two to four weeks to begin working. Even then, there's really no guarantee that the medicine's going to help. So oftentimes, when using medication to treat depression, it's trial by fire. We have to keep trying different drugs, sometimes different combinations, until we find what works for you. It's an art, not a science. I understand. So what medicine do you want to try next? We can try Prozac, Paxil, Celexa, Lexapro, Lavox, Cymbalta, Effexor, Pristique, Savella, Fitzema, Elevil, Pamela, Cinequan, Tofranil, Astanil, Incidon, Sermanto.
We can try Prozac, Paxil, Celexa, Lexapro, Lavox, Cymbalta. Side effects include nausea, increased appetite, decreased appetite, weight loss, weight gain, decreased sexual desire, sexual dysfunction, fatigue, drowsiness, insomnia, dry mouth, constipation, dizziness, agitation, irritability, anxiety, new or worsening depression, suicidal thoughts or actions, especially in teens and young adults. Do not drive or operate heavy machinery until you know how medications affect you. Call your doctor right away if you need help. If you need help. Wake up. If you need help. Wake up. If you need help. Wake up. If you need help. If you need help. Wake up. 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 If you need help, 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 wake up. So, Tanner, you seem a little agitated today. Please? I said you seem a little on edge lately. How are you feeling? Who cares? I feel okay. Liar. Really? You don't look okay. How do I look? You look tired. No shit. So, how have you been sleeping? What a stupid question. Um, fine. A little too fine, actually. What do you mean, too fine? I've been sleeping a lot. How much is a lot? Any chance I get. How many hours do you sleep a night? Probably around 12 hours. More if I had nothing to do in the morning. I see. That doesn't really leave a lot of time to do much, does it? Fucking waste of time. Not really. I've noticed that you have difficulty opening up to me during our sessions. We would get a lot more out of this time if you talked more about yourself. For instance, I don't really know much about your childhood. Perhaps we could start with something simple. Tell me, what was school like for you growing up? Uh, I failed gym in uh, second grade. Uh, let's talk about it. Two reasons I failed. The first one was uh, I couldn't climb a pole, which uh, where on the resume of life does it say you're required to climb a pole? Uh, I never wanted to be a firefighter, nor have I ever had to do a sexy dance. I want to see what all the fuss is about. 
Plus, that's all like upper body strength, right? Which is something I clearly don't possess as a full-grown man, let alone an eight-year-old little boy. Uh, the second reason I failed was I was bad at uh, tetherball, uh, which I dispute to this day because tetherball has a built-in cheat code to win, and all you have to do is hit the ball higher than your opponent can jump. And we've already established that I have a jockey's build, so I lost a lot. And a tetherball wasn't a game where you would lose quickly. Remember, the tether had to wrap all the way around the pole before a winner was declared. Uh, so as soon as the ball sailed over your head, not only did you lose, but you lost for a while. <laughs> where eventually it just turned into the saddest game of keep away ever. <laughs> Guys, give it back. Guys, not, not fair, I was here first. Guys. Shit, you win again. Uh, as if things weren't hard enough for me at the time, I was also really into uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Just normal kid stuff. He was a tap dancer, so I learned how to tap dance also. So my parents signed me up for lessons after school. And uh, one day I'm waiting for classes to start, and this kid sees me from across the gym and starts running after me yelling, I'm going to kill you. Just normal kid stuff. So I turned to run towards the exit, but it was locked from the outside. So at the last second, I do the only thing that I can do, and that is run and hide inside the girls' locker room. I may have only been eight, but I knew I had a lot to live for. <laughs> Particularly that 3.30 dance class I was now late to. So after a couple minutes, I walk out and find the school principal standing there with her arms crossed, uh, asking why I was in the girls' locker room. Uh, so apparently not only was this kid a bully, he was also a fucking snitch. <laughs> Fucking idiot. You're a loser. Nobody loves you. Nobody likes you. What are you gonna do with your life? You're a waste of life. You're a waste of time. All you do is bring people down. I don't even know why you have a life. You should just kill yourself. Just kill yourself. You should just kill yourself. Yourself. Yourself.
Get up. You need help. Get up. 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 Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. You need help. Get up. Get up! Tanner, are you still sleeping? Honey, please get up. We're worried about you. I'm just tired. It's almost dinner time. You've been sleeping all day. I just feel overwhelmed right now, trying to figure everything out. I have a lot on my mind. You know you can always tell us what's going on. Yeah, but I'm not even sure where to begin. Plus, I don't want you guys to worry or freak out. Freak out about what? Never mind. You're not thinking of hurting yourself, are you? <laughs> Dick, we need to get him some help. Let me make a few calls. I'll be right back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tanner Hines? Are you two his parents? Yes. Hi, my name is Cheryl King. I'm one of the social workers here for the center. We have a fair amount of paperwork to get through. Mom and Dad, do you mind stepping out for a few minutes so Tanner and I can speak in private? Sure. sure. We'll be right outside. Okay, Mr. Hines. I hope you don't mind that I asked your parents to step out. We find that we get more honest responses when it's just the patient and a social worker. No problem. Now, can you tell me why you came to us tonight? I was having suicidal thoughts, and my parents thought I should go somewhere. You told them you were having those thoughts? They noticed that I wasn't doing well, and we were talking, and it just sort of came out. What did? The fact that I was having suicidal thoughts. Was or currently? Both. I see. How long have you had these thoughts? A couple years. How often do you have these thoughts? Most days. Have you ever tried to hurt yourself in the past? No. Do you have any plans to hurt yourself in the future? No. Do you live with your parents? Yes. 
Do you feel safe with them? Yes. Would you consider living with your parents to be peaceful? Very. Do you have access to any weapons at home? Outside of kitchen knives, no. Any current stress that you feel is contributing to why you are here tonight? I graduated from UC last year. I felt a lot of stress my last year of college. What was so stressful about your last year of school? I was afraid I would fail and not graduate. I see. Did you do well in school? I graduated with honors. So where does this fear of failure come from? Not sure. What did you study? Communications. Do you currently have a job? No. Now all the stress in trying to finish school has rolled over into trying to find a job. I just don't know what I want to do with my life. All my friends seem to have their lives together and know what they want to do and are pursuing it. Just to be able to go to college is such a gift. It just feels like such a waste and a failure to have nothing to show for it. I see how that could be stressful. You know, Tanner, just because you don't know what it is you want to do yet doesn't mean you're a failure. You don't have to have it all figured out by a certain age. And just because it seems like others have it figured out doesn't mean they actually do. Comparing yourself to others is an easy way to get discouraged. Besides, you never know what someone is going through. So you should never assume. Take your parents, for example. You said they noticed you weren't doing well. I bet they had no idea that you were actually having suicidal thoughts until you thankfully told them. I bet they were quite surprised. You can never tell, and you should never judge. I guess that's true. Tanner, if money wasn't an issue and you were free to pursue your dreams, what would you do? Well, I played drums in a bunch of bands while I was in college. I don't really have the desire to be in bands anymore, but I still love music and I want it to be part of my life. I always thought it'd be cool to work in a recording studio. Also, I've been writing and performing comedy around town for a little while now. Oh wow, really? How's that going? It's going okay. It's hard and nerve-wracking, but it's fun. Is that something you'd like to pursue further? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see where it goes. I think that's great. You are so brave to put yourself out there like that. And you are also very brave in admitting that you need help. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyway, Tanner, should you go home tonight, would you trust yourself to be alone? Remember, you've been honest this whole time. I don't, I don't think so, no. Okay, we will start processing your intake. Involuntary holds are a minimum of 72 hours, but since you are here voluntarily, you are free to leave at any time. We would recommend staying the full 72 hours so that our doctors can do a thorough evaluation. Also, we are going to have to confiscate your cell phone, keys, wallet, belt, shoes, or any sharp objects you may have on you. These items will be stored and returned to you when you leave our facility. We'll have an orderly bring you in a pair of scrubs to change into, after which they will show you to your room. Okay, Mr. Hines, welcome to Adult North, formerly known as the 400 Unit.
Given your age, you would normally stay with the younger patients, but that unit is full. Unfortunately, since you joined us so late in the evening, the kitchen is closed for the night. We do, however, have a fully stocked fridge and snack pantry you're welcome to should you be hungry. You'll fill out a menu card every day stating what you want for breakfast, lunch, and dinner the following day. I will have you fill out your menu card before you turn in. That way, you'll be ready to go in the morning. Speaking of the morning, nurses wake patients every morning at 6 a.m. for vitals and medications. Breakfast is from 7 to 7.30, lunch from 12 to 12.30, and dinner from 5.30 to 6. The rest of the day is filled with various group therapies that all patients are encouraged to attend, as well as various one-on-one -on -one meetings with our medical staff. Here is your room number 24. You'll notice you have your own private shower and restroom. If you want to shower, you'll have to ask the front desk for soap and shampoo. Same with toothbrush and toothpaste. The showers only run for three minutes at a time for obvious reasons. Also, your door must remain cracked throughout the night as nurses make rounds every 30 minutes. We also discourage patients from staying in their rooms during the day so they are free to join all group discussions. Any questions? Um, no. I want you to know that you are in good hands, Mr. Hines. The staff here is wonderful and eager to help in any way they can. I just ask that you keep an open mind, stay positive, and be completely open about what you're going through. Sorry we have to meet so late this afternoon. Um, we normally like to see new patients right away on their first morning, but with both units at full capacity, it's been a busy day. How did you sleep last night? Not great, honestly. Had a hard time falling asleep. Wasn't used to the bed or being checked on so many times. Oh, I'm sorry. I know, it takes some getting used to. Most patients here don't sleep so well their first night. Anyway, my name is Dr. Kelly Johnson. I'm one of the resident psychiatrists here. I just wanted to get more info on your background, why you came here last night, and what we can do for you moving forward. I understand you were having thoughts about hurting yourself? Yes. Uh-huh. And how are those thoughts as you sit here with me now? Better. I think just telling someone about them helped. 
I'm glad to hear it. And you're right, letting others know how you feel helps. Now, I see here that Dr. Daniels is your primary care physician and Dr. Blackman is your therapist? Yes. Good. And Dr. Daniels is the one prescribing your medication? Yes. Good. And what have you taken medication-wise for your depression? I started on Zoloft, then Paxil, Celexa, Cymbalta, and I'm currently on 75 milligrams of Effexor and 50 milligrams of Seroquel at night. Okay, and being that you're here, it's safe to assume that your current medication is not doing what it should? That's safe to say. What did Dr. Daniel say was your initial diagnosis? Clinical depression. Right. Now, weird question. Tanner, would you say that your depression is episodic? I don't understand what that means. Episodic, meaning you have periods of intense depression symptoms, followed by periods of relief from those symptoms. Yes, that sounds like me. And how long do these episodes last? They can last for months. Really? And how many episodes would you say that you've had since starting treatment? Oh, probably four or five. I understand. Um, I think that's all I need for you now. Now, thank you for talking with me. My team and I will discuss your case after dinner and come up with the best treatment plan for you moving forward. We can meet again tomorrow to go over that plan. Do you have any questions? Nope. Mr. Hines, you have a visitor. I told him he could wait inside your room for you. Oh, thank you. Tom? What's up, big guy? Hey, I wasn't expecting another visitor. Another visitor? Yeah, you're like the fifth person to come see me here today. The other patients keep saying they wish they had this many people come visit them. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So how you been doing, man? I've been better. Yeah, your sister called me and, and told me what happened, and I had, I had no idea you were even depressed. Yeah, only my family knows. Why didn't you tell anyone else? I didn't want anyone to worry about me. Plus, I just felt like I would burden people by telling them. Yeah, I get that, but we're your friends. We want to know when you're struggling so we can be there for you. I guess that's true. I mean, none of us can help you if you don't tell anyone what's going on. I know. Well, do you? I feel like you don't. I do now. Well, I mean, I'm proud of you for deciding to do something about how you feel. You're very brave. Everyone keeps saying how brave I am. What other choice do I have? I can't say I know how you feel. Sure, I could say it from time to time. We all do. But definitely nothing like this. What's it like? Like, what does it feel like? It feels like there's a hole in my chest. I can feel it behind my skin. There's a sinking feeling right in the middle of my chest. Feels like there's a gaping hole where my skin, tissue, and bone should be. But nothing. Like someone shot me. I carry it with me wherever I go. 
And all I try to do is fill that hole, stay busy, fill the hole, do as much as I can, fill the hole. You have a lot of people that care about you. I've been talking to them all day. A lot of them are coming to see you. That is to help, right? Yeah, but it's never enough. No matter what I do, no matter how much I accomplish, no matter how many people love me, it's never enough to fill the void. It's like a little reminder tapping me on the shoulder saying, I've always been behind you and I always will be. I just feel... Empty. So Tanner, my team and I have discussed your current treatment and how we'd like to move forward. First off, we feel it's necessary to update your diagnosis. Initially, your depression was clinical, but since you described your depression as episodic, that would indicate more of what we call major depressive disorder. I see. We would also like to have you start seeing a psychiatrist to oversee your medication use. A psychiatrist is better suited at choosing appropriate medications and monitoring side effects. Okay. Also, Tanner, because of the number of antidepressants you've been on that have not worked, you have what is known as treatment-resistant depression, meaning your depression does not respond to traditional forms of treatment. I'm curious, have you ever heard of transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS therapy? No. It's a newer form of treatment that the FDA approved a few years ago that's aimed at helping people like yourself who have treatment-resistant depression. The brain has areas that are underactive in the presence of depression, particularly in the left prefrontal cortex. TMS uses a targeted pulse magnetic field similar to what's used in an MRI, placed directly on the scalp to stimulate those underactive areas. It's been quite successful in helping patients manage their depression. We actually offer TMS treatment here and at University Hospital. Does that sound like something you'd be interested in pursuing? Um, yeah, I, I guess. Great. The only issue is that it's a significant time commitment. You'd have to commit to an hour of treatment, five days a week, for six weeks. Oh, that is a lot. But if you think it'll help me, what do I have to lose? Great! We can go ahead and make TMS a part of your treatment plan. Tanner? Yeah? Hi Tanner. I'm Nurse Jackie. It's nice to meet you. I'll be administering your treatment. Come on back! Right this way. Go ahead and take a seat, please. Here are some earplugs. The machine is loud, so you are going to want to wear these. Thank you. Now, typically sessions last for 36 minutes. But this first session will take longer because we have to do what's called a brain mapping. It's where we find the exact location we want to focus our magnet. So please hold your hand out flat on the armrest with your fingers spread. 
we will send test pulses out and move the magnet around on your head until we hit a spot that causes your pinky to twitch. Once that happens, we will know we are pulsing the right spot. After we find the right spot, we will want to try to increase the strength of the pulse. Our goal is to get you up to full strength within the first week of treatment. Once treatment begins, sessions will last for 36 minutes. Each cycle lasts 30 seconds, so there are four seconds of pulse burst, followed by a 26 second break. Patients usually report noticing a change somewhere around the fourth week. So, it is important that you stick with it for the entirety of the treatment. How does that sound? I trust you. Good! Let's begin. Dr. Stephen Rush is an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Cincinnati. He is also the medical director of ambulatory services in the psychiatric department and co-director for the treatment-resistant depression program for UC Health. We sat down with Dr. Rush to discuss the topic of depression. So I, I think this is a little bit of a difficult question to answer as a physician because I suspect that anybody can define what depression is. And I would say for the general population, depression is a word that is used to describe a mood that clinically is probably also described as low, sometimes sad, sometimes slow might be a word that describes a mood. Is there a difference between depression and what we would consider clinical depression? Yes, there is. Clinical depression, I think, is a term that I often hear patients and media sources, general population sources, use more than we actually use in medicine. What I believe is meant when we're talking about clinical depression is the kind of depression or mood that interferes with someone's functioning and is outside the range of what we might expect to be normal emotional responses to life situations. Sadness or depression from losing your job is not clinical depression because we would expect that. Um, but if that mood extends beyond 
three to four weeks and results in lack of functioning like taking care of your hygiene, getting out of the house or eating, but also things like decreased energy, sleep problems, or things as severe as suicidal thinking, that is a clinical syndrome that is now interfering with your function. And so clinical depression might also be thought of as depression, the disease. The definition I think here of clinical is that it is more than just part of a normal process of experiencing moods in life but rather a mood state that is representative of a disease. Okay. That, right. that disease typically will resolve with or without treatment at some point, and whether or not it comes back is dependent from person to person. When should people uh, get treatment for their depression or seek treatment for their depression? Yeah, that's a little bit of a difficult question because I, I don't know that there's a right answer. And, and what I might tell anybody who asks me that personally as a psychiatrist is, if you're questioning that you should seek help, then you probably should see someone. And, and best case scenario, you see someone who can clarify what's going on for you um, and let you know if this is something that needs treatment and you know, if so, what kind. I think if you're worried about what's going on with your mood such that you're asking that question even to yourself, it's probably a good indicator that you're concerned that there's something more than that normal range of moods that's going on and is worth investigating. What are some reasons or why, why do some people not get treatment for their depression? I think there are probably um, different facets to why people don't get treatment for depression. I think there's health system issues for why people don't get depression, and that includes primarily access to people who specialize in treating depression. Right. Well, most of the time, primary care doctors do very well treating depression. Um, a lot of times, depression that does not respond well to more simple interventions requires referrals to psychiatrists. And getting into a psychiatrist in our current healthcare system can be very difficult, whether it's because of healthcare issues and that can be whether psychiatrists take your insurance or whether you can afford specialty co-pays, um, but can also include whether or not clinics have availability for new patients. So, for example, in Cincinnati, a lot of private practice uh, psychiatrists, even small group practices, are no longer taking new patients and have not been through their intake departments in quite a long time um, because it's difficult in a saturated in a saturated market in terms of how many people or patients you have to keep taking new people. So I think there's a health system issue with getting treatment for depression. I think some of the other issues that that I encounter more frequently in terms of why people themselves wait to get into treatment um, is stigma around seeking help for mental health care. Right. You know, this country has a long history of stigmatizing mental health care into things that are not worthy of being considered a disease. Um, terms that have been used in the past for mental health to describe diseases or disease states, the way that people with mental health issues were treated. It's been good that since the 1970s, we started deinstitutionalizing people with severe mental illness. It's good that 
you know, the number of residents who, who are medical students who want to go into psychiatry is increasing every year. And that as a whole, we are acknowledging mental health, but the effects of, you know, even 50, if not hundreds of years of stigma around mental health do not erase easily. And they sit in the back of people's minds. So acknowledging that you have a problem that may require the attention of a psychiatrist or any doctor who's treating depression can often feel like admitting weakness, right? Or can often feel like acknowledging craziness. Um, you can't see this, but I'm using air quotes because I don't like this word crazy yeah. um, because it absolutely does not describe anybody that I have ever treated in mental health. But that word is a great example of what the stigma of seeking help is. What are some of the first steps people should take uh, to get help for their mental illness? I think going back to the healthcare system problems that we have in the United States, that the best way to first start addressing the problem with a clinician is to make an appointment with your primary care or general practitioner doctor, family doctor. Um, if it is something more than that family doctor can manage on their own, they're also a great source for referring you to a psychiatrist. And often those kind of doctor-to-doctor doctor referrals will get you in quicker. Um, I see that people are frustrated with not being able to get into a psychiatry department most often when they have not approached a primary care physician yet and are going straight into calling the psychiatrist's office, in which case it's a self-referral and that in some systems doesn't get the same priority maybe that a referral from a physician to a physician does, right? Right. Um, and so I, I definitely advocate that starting with family family medicine doctors or primary care physicians is the best way to utilize the resources that are available to patients. So this is something that I struggle with um, in terms of being able to talk about. And, and I think I often disappoint the residents that I educate when I, when I talk about treatments for depression because we have a lot of them. Um, the problem that we have in terms of most psychiatric disorders is that we don't know much about what's going on. So a lot of people are aware that for depression, the primary choice of medications are antidepressants that affect serotonin. Right. The reality is that we don't have any scientific evidence that in people who have major depressive disorder that there is any problem with serotonin. Right. So it's almost serendipity that these medications work because we're not sure why they work, right? Right. Other than that, though, I, I think that the issue of common treatments can come from whether or not you're looking for what actually happens or maybe, in my opinion, what should be the common treatments because what should be the common treatments do exist. I think what you will most often find is that people come into a clinician's office um, have valid complaints of depression and will be treated on any number of serotonin drugs known as SSRIs or these days more and more SNRIs, which right. affect serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, but we know through evidence-based studies 
that certain therapy modalities, psychotherapy modalities, are equally as effective for treating depression when compared head-to-head with antidepressant medications. Though therapy as a primary treatment is not common in treatment of depression today. Um, Really? Yeah, it's not. I actually don't know that I'm qualified to say why it is, but I understand and maybe have felt this way myself, that the idea that taking one pill every morning will make you better is very much more appealing than sitting down in an office for someone with someone for an hour once a week to talk about how you're feeling. Right? Yeah, I can see that. And so I think the common treatments are probably mostly antidepressant treatments. Right. Common treatments are also therapy. It's often combined. Ideally, um, we would have a way to differentiate who might benefit from one or the other because resources are so scarce right. that if we could tell who might need a 12-week course of cognitive behavioral therapy to shore up their mood versus someone who really primarily needs an antidepressant, then we would increase our access or decrease our access problem, um, but also do better by our patients. Are you a big believer in in combining therapy and medication? Absolutely. Um, I think the concept that, that psychiatrists themselves should be 15-minute pharmaceutical practitioners with 15-minute appointments uh, is one that that not only really underestimates the skills of most psychiatrists, but grossly neglects that psychiatric problems are much more complex than just a chemical imbalance in the brain. And that understanding your psyche and how maybe depression affects you as an individual because of the experiences throughout your lifetime. And that may be average experiences, but that may be things such as trauma and early childhood. That exploring the psyche of people who have depression to understand what's already pre-programmed based on life's experiences to maybe make this depression worse is absolutely valid to full recovery. So I absolutely advocate combining therapy and medication management. What is some advice you have for someone considering going into actual therapy for the first time? Be ready to sample. I think one thing that comes from having access problems in mental health is that it can take so long to get in to see someone that when you get there, you feel that this is your only option. And what I advocate for my patients is do a test run with a therapist, keep in your mind that you are going to commit to one to two appointments and then evaluate whether or not you feel comfortable with this person. If their method of approaching what's going on with you aligns with what feels right, and if in general it's a good match, and if it's not a good match, it's time to make another appointment with someone new. Um, I think the reason that therapy fails most often for people is not because therapy doesn't work, but rather we don't do well as clinicians of discussing that a very important part, if not in some studies, the most important part of successful therapy is the relationship between the therapist and the patient. And so sometimes 
shopping around until you find that perfect fit is going to be the most important decider as to whether or not this will be helpful. What do antidepressants do? So I can tell you what antidepressants do physiologically. Classic antidepressants work to prevent your body from degrading serotonin or serotonin and norepinephrine that exists between the neurons in your brain. I guess I should also include dopamine in terms of some antidepressants that stop the breakdown of dopamine in between the synapses in your brain. I think the theory of depression is that there are deficits of three neurochemicals, and that's serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Um, Again, we don't have any studies that we can point to that really prove there are deficits with these neurochemicals. However, using medications that create basically more available serotonin, norepinephrine, or dopamine can be the most effective way of treating depression. So that's what antidepressants do in a factual description, I suppose. Um, What antidepressants do in terms of how do they treat depression, I think remains to be seen. There is a lot of information about things that are associated. So antidepressant use successful treatment of depression, those are both associated, for example, with an increase in levels of brain-derived neurotrophic factor in patients' blood. Um, And brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, is a neurochemical that's very important for maintaining healthy neurons in the brain. But an association does not imply causality. There is no evidence that, for example, here that antidepressants work because they increase BDNF. And that's the way it is with most things that we know about these medications is we understand associations, but we cannot make causal connections. Do we know why some antidepressants work for some people and not for others? This is a difficult question to answer as well, because scientific literature would inform us that actually most antidepressants, if not all antidepressants, are equally effective. And unfortunately, the the percentage of efficacy for these medications is, is abysmally low, since some studies as low as 30% effective. There are situations in which different medications may work better for other patients or for different patients. I think knowing why that is, is again, this problem of serendipity in psychiatry. And that I can tell you for a number of patients that I treat, that for some reason, there are people who have a dramatic response to medications that affect both serotonin and norepinephrine, but do not respond to medications that just affect serotonin. And I have no doubt that there's a reason why that is, but we don't have the scientific evidence to explain what that difference is. Aside from from neurochemicals, though, and, and what medications do, I would again point back to the relationship that people have with their doctors. Psychiatry 
even in med management, should be discussing what's going on in someone's life and, and the stressors that are making life more difficult if that's what's happening. And so there's a therapeutic relationship there almost inevitably. And again, in outcome studies of what helps people get better, the relationship between the doctor and the patient is the number one factor there. And so I, th I think the short answer is we don't really know. There are some theories about genetic differences and how people metabolize these medications. Right. There aren't a large amount of studies that show using that genetic information to make medication changes actually has positive outcomes. And that may be true. The studies may not have been done yet. What is major depressive disorder? Major depressive disorder is a diagnosis that comes out of the, the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that right. describes a disease and describes the symptoms and how many symptoms are required to make a diagnosis and how long those symptoms have been present. So for major depressive disorder in DSM-5, there is a period of low mood or depressed mood that has been present for at least two weeks and includes at least five of nine symptoms. Those nine symptoms are sleep disturbances, decreased ability to experience enjoyment, uh, feelings of guilt or worthlessness, decrease in energy levels, inability to concentrate, changes in appetite, changes in what we call psychomotor function. Um, so psychomotor retardation would be a subjective sense that you're moving very slow or an objective sense if someone sees it. And psychomotor agitation is, is, would best be described as like restlessness. Right. Um, and then the ninth symptom category is suicidal ideation. The problem with the diagnosis of major depressive disorder as defined by this, this Bible in psychiatry is that this is not a scientifically based document. So this book is full of, of very helpful information about diagnoses, but the information about the diagnoses and the criteria for the diagnoses is created by work groups each time this book is revised of people who work in the field of psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And there is some interesting uh, investigative journalism out there that shows that a lot of the people in these work groups have ties to pharmaceutical industries that should be investigated a little bit more closely. So major depressive disorder is the same thing as clinical depression that we were talking about before. Okay. But that specific word is a diagnosis that's used in the DSM that is almost an opinion-based formulation of what clinical depression is. So you don't see a difference between the two? I don't think that using the word major depressive disorder is helpful outside of getting medications approved by the FDA or getting your doctor's appointments covered by your insurance. Okay. I was just like, that, that sounds really cynical, right? No. no. Um, but I think it's the reality of where we live. The natural progression of clinical depression or major depressive disorder is that people have episodes. You're right to use the word episode. So people have episodes of depression mm -hmm. that with or without treatment inevitably will improve to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, and that this tends to be somewhat of a cyclical disease. And that is that people are depressed for some 
undefinable period of time, that depression either completely resolves or resolves to some degree and is maintained until another episode starts and then the depression gets more severe. So depression tends to be episodic. Why that information is important, though, is that if you have had one episode of clinical depression or major depression, you are 25% more likely to have a second episode. After two episodes of clinical depression, you're climbing into the 70th percentiles of likelihood of of having another episode. And once you get into third and fourth episodes, we're approaching 90 to 95% likelihood that you're going to have another episode. Transcraniomagnetic stimulation is a treatment for this term, treatment-resistant depression. TMS, or transcraniomagnetic stimulation, is based on the theory that people with major depressive disorder have parts of their brains that are not functioning at the level in those who don't have depression. And we know this by studying people who have major depressive disorder and looking at the activity of areas of their brain and comparing that to samples of people who don't have major depressive disorder Mm -hmm. and how functional their brains are. So there are specific areas of the brain that are underactive in those with major depressive disorder. And TMS uses an electromagnet to indirectly stimulate um, the neurons in those areas of the brain that are most underactive in major depressive disorder. Psychiatry is a very difficult field to describe why something works. Right. So I can't tell you how TMS causes relief from depression, but I can tell you that the evidence shows that using this electromagnetic stimulation to increase the activation of those areas of the brain that are underactive also activates areas of the brain that are connected to the treatment area and increases their activity. And TMS in general increases some of the neurochemicals we talked about before, for example, serotonin and norepinephrine in parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. How that's related to why people respond to TMS again, is not known. It's an association. It's probably the least invasive form of treatment, but also one of the most time-consuming. And so TMS consists of applying Monday through Friday a series of pulses to these areas of the brain that are underactive. Very specifically, 3,000 pulses per day to an area of the brain on the left side called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that is done... Monday through Friday for a total of 30 treatments. That time range can vary depending on what machine a clinician is using. We're using an electromagnet to s- similar to what is used in an MRI machine. Right. And these magnets tend to generate heat. And so you can't continuously fire these pulses until you reach 3,000 because the coil will overheat. And so you, you have to take breaks to allow enough time for the coil to cool down to then start those pulse trains again. And so the time in any one day typically ranges from 16 minutes to 48 minutes, actually, if that's not too specific, for how much time you're devoting each day to being in treatment. What are some of the myths about depression that people think are true, but in actuality are not? 
When I looked at this question, I actually had two different thoughts in terms of categories of what depression is not. Depression is not crazy, and that is a very important idea to make sure that people suffering from this disease, people who treat this disease, people who have contact with this disease are constantly propagating to diminish the stigma that we put onto mental health disorders. Um, Depression is not crazy. Mm Depression is also not the responsibility or the fault of the person who is depressed. I operate under the belief that most people are doing the best that they can in the circumstances that they are in in any given time. Mm -hmm. And none of us are perfect. None of us are all good as much as none of us are all bad. And so depression is not something you cause for yourself. And I think that is part of the stigma of getting treatment for mental health disorders is this belief that this is something we may have caused, maybe only second behind the very often heard phrase, this is all in my head, yep. which is a phrase that seems to diminish what's happening, or I think at least is used to try to minimize what's really going on here. Because my response as a psychiatrist to that would be, you're absolutely right, this is all in your head. Because you have this organ in your head called your brain. Mm -hmm. And your brain is not functioning in a way that keeps you in a state other than depressed. And so that organ is not functioning. But the concept, this is all in your head, implies I'm making this up. And because I'm making it up, I can also just as easily make it go away if I stop making it happen to myself. And that's not what depression is. On another side of it, depression is not feeling sad. Sometimes for people, depression is feeling sad. Mm -hmm. Sometimes depression is feeling empty. Sometimes depression is feeling absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, Regardless of what the emotional state is, it's uncomfortable. It's not this stereotype of somebody who's sitting in bed crying all day or the stereotype of Eeyore who's just yeah. very pessimistic and always down, yeah. right? Yeah. Depression comes in a variety of forms. And so depression is not one thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, depression is also not simple. It is not something that you should expect can be fixed with a pill, Human beings are such wonderfully complicated organisms um, and our brain structure and our psyches are so wonderfully complicated that to reduce us to something that is just a chemical reaction between two cells is to really underestimate uh, our capabilities and kind of the magnificence of what we are. And so depression is not something that you can't fix without being able to look inside yourself, be introspective, and look at things in your life that are contributing to this problem. Right. Depression is also not normal sadness. I mean, this is what I, this is the second part that I was thinking of earlier. Uh-huh. And that is, for example, when a loved one dies, you feel sad. Or you may not feel sad. Everybody grieves differently. But in the case of those who feel sad and maybe cry most of the day and stop getting out of bed for a little while or aren't functioning as well, to call this depression is doing a disservice to 
normal human emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think as a society, we're moving away from accepting that negative emotions are normal. And depression can be a normal emotion. Feeling sad and sometimes feeling sad for prolonged periods of time is absolutely normal in any number of circumstances that should make us feel sad. Depression is not sadness that should be expected. In my experience in life, the way to make something less scary is to make it more accessible. Mm -hmm. And accessibility in terms of stigma, in my opinion, means more conversations and making discussion of depression part of our everyday dialogue, something that we can discuss over coffee with friends, like we would discuss that our blood sugars aren't getting well when we have diabetes. As a healthcare system, we then also have to be responsible for disseminating accurate information about what depression is. Right. One of the things that breaks my heart the most is when we see incidents like mass shootings mm -hmm. and news corporations are immediately discussing mental health diagnoses mm -hmm. that they suspect this person may have had. Right. Statistically, this is not what happens. Breaking that part of this stigma around mental health, which makes the person with mental health problems seem very scary, mm -hmm. is also a part of that dialogue that happens. I think... I'm not sure where the disconnect is, where the people, any of us, I think myself included, you know, what is my avenue to get on the news and say, actually, people who have schizophrenia really only commit violent crime at a rate 3% higher than those of people who don't have schizophrenia. And so that's probably not what's happening with these mass shootings. I realize we're talking about depression. But yeah, that's, right, yeah. that, that's a disease that I know that statistic of. For me, as a psychiatrist, it's also making sure that if I have the opportunity to speak about it, that I do it. Heavy Heads Season 1, Episode 1, To Janitor the Emptiness, is written and produced by Tanner Hines. Tanner Hines, voiced by Tanner Hines. Dr. Daniels, voiced by Chad Daniels. Susan Hines, voiced by Valerie Schwinn. Dick Hines, voiced by Sean Braley. Dr. Terry Blackman, voiced by Max Lemaire. Side Effect voiceover, voiced by Lauren Hutton. Cheryl King, voiced by Nikki Witterstatter. Orderly, voiced by Tabari McCoy. Dr. Kelly Johnson, voiced by Becca Stollard. Tom, voiced by Tom Witterstatter. Nurse Jackie, voiced by Leah Meserly. Narration and art design by Evan Verrilli. Thank you to Dr. Stephen Rush for taking the time to talk with us. Original music by Real Blue Heartache Kids. Their music is available online wherever you buy or listen to music. If you or a loved one is experiencing a psychiatric emergency and live in the United States, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 for free and confidential support 24-7-365. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the handle at heavyheadpod. Subscribe to our official YouTube channel, Heavy Head Podcast. You can email us at heavyheadpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you enjoy the show, please share us with a friend or relative. You can support the show by making a monthly monetary pledge when you join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash heavyheadpodcast and get access to exclusive content. You can also support the show by making a one-time monetary donation to paypal.me slash tannerhines1. That's paypal.me slash t-a-n-n-e-r-h-i-n-d-s, the number one on PayPal, or at t-hines-1. That's at t-h-i-n-d-s dash the number one on Venmo. Lastly, merch is available at heavyhead.bigcartel.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next month. Until then, take care of yourself.